Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, welcome to this Global Council podcast. Um, this podcast is a response to the developments of yesterday and the publication by the European Commission of a series of proposals intended to unlock the current impasse with the British government over the treatment of trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And we're going to use this podcast just to unpack uh, some of the core elements of those proposals and obviously to then look forward to the way they're likely to be interpreted uh, and received by the British government and what they suggest in terms of a possible landing zone for the knotty question of whether it's going to be possible to uh, reach a new steady state in uh, Great British trade with Northern Ireland in the months and in the, the years ahead. I'm delighted to be joined on this podcast by Ellie Darkin, who is a senior associate from the GC trade team, and by Denzel Davidson, who is a senior advisor to GC and an expert in all things Northern Ireland, both political and trade. Um, Ellie, if I can start with you, I think what we what, what perhaps we should do here is we, let's focus on the customs elements of the proposals, uh, the, the EU's proposals on sanitary and phytosanitary uh, uh, protocols for, uh, for trade, and you're going to have to explain to us what SPS means, and uh, some of the key elements of the EU's proposals with respect to the overall governance of the relationship. Obviously, the, uh, the EU proposals go wider than that, um, but let's perhaps just focus on those key practical questions. So maybe you can start us off just with um, with the Commission's proposals on customs, and in particular, the key way in which the EU is proposing to unlock a new agreement on the on the customs question. Hi, Stephen. Yes, absolutely. That sounds good. So to start with customs, the absolute headline from the EU's proposal, which came out last night on customs, is that the Commission has appeared to accept a, a very core principle to some of the British government's proposals on the Northern Ireland process protocol of the not at risk principle. And what this essentially means is that they have agreed to a form of segregation of goods, uh, those which are headed to for, for final consumption in the Northern Irish market, and those which are at risk of onward movement into the Republic of Ireland. Uh, this has been a call, call from businesses, it's been called to the British government's proposals on adapting its approach to customs. And this is the first time we've actually seen the Commission accept that this principle, which was baked in to, in some ways to the Northern Ireland Protocol to the, at the beginning, being finally expanded um, to cover all goods that are potentially moving from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. And what the proposal um, in the European Commission's non-paper has suggested is that this segregation of goods will essentially create some form of express lane, so that goods destined from, um, from, North, from Great Britain into Northern Ireland will essentially be able to fast track some of those customs processes and protocols and will be able to arrive in, in, in Northern Ireland without having un undergone the full customs protocols that would have originally been required. And as you say, th this is... This is not actually a new conceptual approach for the protocol, is it? But it's an expansion of an existing conceptual approach. Can you just explain a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the existing approach to the principle of at risk and not at risk was originally um, baked into the protocol, I believe, with regards to tariff treatment. So the idea was that the um, tariffs would never be payable when 
with regards to goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, but in some circumstances they would be payable if they didn't qualify for zero tariff treatment under the TTA if they're at a risk of, of moving onwards into the Republic Island. So this is a principle that already existed and the calls around, the, uh, around and the asks around this at-risk principle have always been relating to the expansion and, and the, the broadening of the criteria for assessing which goods are at risk or not at risk of onward movement into Republic of Ireland. And that, of course, that raises the question of how you'll know that a good is not at risk of moving onward into the Republic when it's imported or moved into Northern Ireland. How's the Commission proposing to deal with that taxonomic question? So interestingly, the, the Commission's proposal is very light on detail on how they would go about defining an eligibility criteria for goods that were at risk or not at risk. What they've done in the proposal is they've outlined a series of criteria that they would potentially consider. And these range from things like, you know, identifying the origin of the good, identifying the final destination and consumer, looking at things like um, audit processes and previous compliance of traders with customs protocols in the past, but they haven't put forward a model as such. And I think this is actually a common theme that we'll see through the commission's proposals that they, they suggest criteria, they suggest general approaches, but a lot of the detail actually still needs to be very much fleshed out. And that will be a key concern for businesses who are reading this, these proposals uh, last night or this morning and wondering how exactly they are supposed to prove that their goods are, are not at risk of onward movement into Republic of Ireland. Yeah. Denzel, if I can bring you in here, um, I mean, as Ellie says, that the, the fix the Commission is proposing here is essentially the elaboration of a principle that already exists in the protocol, although it's used on a much narrower basis. I mean, how, how much of a, of a move does this make this for Brussels? And how hard do you think it would ultimately have been for Brussels to accept the idea of expanding the use of this particular principle in, in this way? Is it is it ultimately a way of avoiding the perception of more fundamental change to the protocol? Well, it depends on whether you look at it uh, glass half full or glass half empty. Uh, to answer your second question uh, first, I think it was quite hard to agree it within the Commission because the overall approach does loosen somewhat uh, the single market's borders in respect of, of Northern Ireland. Now, the Commission has talked up enormously as part of its sell of the package, uh, the blood on the carpet, that, that Maros Shevchevich, the Commission Vice President, has bleeding wounds from persuading DG Sante and others to, to allow the, the, this, uh, this slightly lighter approach. Now, uh, that's the spin, but it clearly wasn't without difficulty, and it sets a certain potential kind of precedent for, for other relationships. Uh, but there is still very much a border there in the Irish Sea. So the e although the EU hasn't conceded really any new principle, they've expanded on an old principle. And in practice, this will mean that it will be easier to move goods from Britain to Northern Ireland than it would have been in a hypothetical world where the protocol had been already been implemented in full. But it's still going to feel quite bordery. Well, and it seems to me as well that, I mean, there's a range of principles in play here from Brussels' point of view. And as you've both alluded, one of the key ones is, of course, that nothing can compromise the integrity of the single market. And that presumably means for British traders that precisely how this question of a goods at risk status is determined, what kind of monitoring and surveillance mechanisms is going to involve is going to be important here because the Commission and the European Council are going to need reassurance that this is not 
essentially a, a mechanism that's vulnerable to leakage. Okay, Ellie, sausages. Um, what's the proposed solution on trade in meats? So to give a bit of context to this, chilled meats fall under a category um, of international trade, a category within international trade called prohibited and restricted goods. Uh, these are goods that are generally banned from entry from any country under any form of agreement into um, a country's market, in this case, the EU internal, the, the EU single market. So this is something that has been known from the start. It was, it was, a, it was a known fact when the protocol was agreed at the end of last year. And there was a six month grace period baked into the protocol, which would allow, which was essentially designed to allow supply chains time to adjust so that the chilled meats to be sourced in Northern Ireland would come essentially from the EU and not from Great Britain. Uh, this all came to a head at the end of June this year uh, over the, the infamous sausage wars. And you know the the resolution to the issue at the time was simply to just extend the grace period and allow goods from Great Britain to, to continue moving into Northern Ireland. The UK has been very clear in its asks on this that it wants a permanent extension to that derogation. It wants that to be extended um, indefinitely, and you know it's very important on a political, on a practical level, and also for a sense of kind of national identity, I guess, in the UK government's eyes, for for British chilled meats to be able to make it onto the market in Northern Ireland. Now the Commission has um, basically been, been, been very flexible in its approach to this issue in some regards. So what it said is that prohibited and restricted goods would be allowed to enter Northern Ireland from Great Britain. So they are essentially changing in quite a fundamental way what was initially agreed towards the end of last year. However, there would be new and fairly onerous um, requirements around businesses who would be um, moving those goods across the border and into Northern Ireland. And these include individual certifications um, for the, each, each consignment of chilled meats that are moved into Northern Ireland. And it would include more product specific labeling requirements to identify these goods as prohibited and restricted chilled meats that have now been allowed to, to move into Northern Ireland. So there's two kind of uh, parts to that. And I think that's interesting when it comes to the rest of the SPS proposals that we can look at the one hand on the certification requirements and another hand on the labelling requirements and chilled meats is one of those areas where businesses are facing new requirements in both those areas, um, which essentially, you know, would allow them to continue moving the chilled meats into Northern Ireland, but it may well make that um, an unsustainable cost for businesses and practice to continue that supply line. And there seems to be a, also an underlying assumption that a prerequisite for a system of this kind will be that UK production standards for meat products remain aligned with, broadly aligned with EU rules. Is that right? Yes, there's some interesting wording in the non-paper on SPS with regards to potential for UK alignment with EU rules on basic production requirements. Now, there's an interesting follow-up line for this, which is along the lines of the UK might also consider alignment with basic production requirements for other areas to facilitate um, SPS cooperation. Um, but yes, there is a general sense that in order for the EU to grant this quite considerable flexibility towards its approach to prohibited and restricted goods, it will need a form of alignment. It's not clear from the proposal whether this is going to be a dynamic alignment, whether it's going to be more of a static alignment with the state of play with rules at the moment with potential review clauses um, and inbuilt snapback mechanisms and things like that. But that will certainly be, I imagine, quite a big topic of conversation um, in the talks which are unraveling as we speak. Yeah. Okay. So 
Dinzel, if we can come to governance, um, I mean, one of the one of the UK's red lines in this process has consistently been that, or rather since the publication of the command paper has consistently been uh, that the, the European Court of Justice should have no, no oversight role in the operation of the protocol. Um, the EU appears to have rejected such a demand. Um, what do the EU's proposals tell us about uh, any possible landing ground on some of these broader questions of governance and, and indeed the protocol's wider role in Northern Ireland politics? So uh, you are absolutely right that the British government has been thoroughly consistent on this for the past two and a half months. Uh, but the, the bad <laughs> that's news- an, That's is, an eternity. <laughs> the, uh, the bad news is that the, the two sides are still very far apart on this. And uh, the EU asserts that uh, the ECJ is the sole arbiter of what EU law is. Uh, Northern Ireland is in the single market. That means that insofar as EU law applies, the ECJ must continue to be the arbiter. And they say this is an absolutely fundamental point. Uh, so to the UK government, no way, Jose. And by the way, this wasn't a problem for, uh, for you before, two and a half months ago. Um, and why are you exciting people about this? Uh, the, the British government's uh, drive for this, I think, is principally ideological. It hadn't featured very much as in, in the Northern Ireland's debate. But there's no doubt that I think the Prime Minister and David Frost uh, feel that um, they have delivered an incomplete Brexit because of this. Uh, and there's a section of the Conservative uh, Parliamentary Party that also gets um, uh, very cross about this. Uh, so the two sides are, are a long way apart. We come on to this a bit, but that will therefore necessarily inform uh, the Prime Minister's decision about whether to accept the, the framework of the proposals as the basis negotiation that the EU has put forward. Um, the EU does understand that there is a problem in Northern Ireland with the protocol because the nature of the protocol is that other than by a, uh, a periodic and very all or nothing consent mechanism, it means that EU laws apply to Northern Ireland without Northern Irish voters having any say on it, on those parts where the EU law applies. Uh, and this is one of the things that gets the Unionist parties really uh, riled up. And there is really no good answer to it. So what the EU has tried to do is say, we're going to improve the consultative mechanisms but by the way, a lot of that's up to the British government. And we think there should be more transparency so people know what, what they should be lobbying on. But this also runs against from the British government's other instincts, which is that, as David Frost said in his speech uh, in Lisbon earlier this week, um, uh, Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. It is not a condominium. And British ministers do not like the commissioners that were reaching over their heads and talking to Northern Irish society directly. So, uh, all sides' interests are not well aligned on this, and this is, could well be the most difficult difficult point in the talks to come. Okay, so well, on that subject of the talks to come, just, just take us through what happens now in, in, in terms of uh, the elaboration of the Commission's arguments and UK engagement with them, and how that relates to any kind of key pinch points or decision points for the UK with respect to uh, unilateral action. Sure. So where we are is that we've now had an exchange of papers. Uh, the the uh, UK government's uh, paper, command paper from July. Now this paper, the British government has also privately uh, submitted legal text to the European Commission on what they'd like to see. That is not public. You wouldn't expect legal text to be public. Um, uh, commission officials are today, today being Thursday uh, in London, to talk about it. There's supposed to be a meeting in the next few days between Maros Shevchevich and Lord Frost. Uh, the British government have said 
that uh, they've given the talks about three weeks. Now that's a self-imposed deadline. You know, it could go on longer if they want it. But uh, judging by the immediate, moderately positive, I caveat the moderates there, response to the British government that this is a significant move, then I think they will make a proper effort to see where they can go. And the question for the British government is, do they think that the, the framework they use putting forward, is that going to be enough for them to get to somewhere where they're, they're happy with? which they think will work for Northern Ireland. And by the way, none of the unionist parties are satisfied with this, although the other parties are. So whenever that self-imposed deadline is felt that it should expire in three weeks or so, so you know, end of first week of November, maybe mid-November, that is the big crunch point for the British government. And that's when the prime minister, and it will be he who decides, must decide, decide I'll go along with this or it is not enough. And I'm going to use article 16 and legally, but unilaterally, suspend parts of the protocol and impose the ways of working I want to see. Yeah. Um, uh, if he follows the law, and I think he will, uh, when he says that there will be a month of consultation, he doesn't have to disclose exactly what he's going to do with the with the, the protocol. But this is all legal terror incognita. So that takes us then to early. Or Sorry, when you say follow the law, there you mean just literally fo follow follow the the mediation mechanism set out in the protocol. Follow the process you. set out in in the protocol, yeah. and that will take us to early mid uh, December. You might want to think about how that interacts with the timing of the December European Council, and that's when it kicks in. And if he does go ahead with it, then straight away the Commission can respond with proportionate measures. Uh, to which are effect countervailing measures, which could say take the form of tariffs. And then if they want to enlarge the dispute, there are other mechanisms in the trade and cooperation agreement, the main trade agreement between the UK and the EU, which allowed them to take uh, broader action. But that is a much more cumbersome process uh, with a lot more arbitration. In the meantime, the two sides can go, uh, go for a dispute resolution mechanism and see what it finds. So, Ellie, if, if we can just tackle one final theme here, which is the question of what these proposals might suggest for the wider UK-EU trade relationship in the future. Obviously, the, the, the GB Northern Ireland route is only one part of the picture with respect to um, the, the trading relationship between the, the UK and the EU single market. But of course, it strikes me that one, one of the fundamental points here is that the EU has tried to, to choose a solution that by using the not at risk model, essentially tr try, tr tries to limit the extent to which you have to treat Northern Ireland in these cases as if it were in the single market. But that suggests that some of these solutions might be hard to translate over to the wider trading relationship. And I would have thought that maybe in the, in the way that alignment and potential alignment has been worked into these proposals, that also perhaps tells us something about the way in which the EU is going to think about the future relationship. So what's your take on that? I mean, to, to what extent do you think this is a series of idiosyncratic solutions for Northern Ireland? And to what extent do you think we can, we can perhaps start to intuit here some of the ways the EU might think about the long-term UK-EU trading relationship for these kinds of goods? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point, because when we're looking at what the EU Commission has put forward in its proposals, we often talk about them as having shifted their position. But if we think of what they've shifted it from, it was a position in which they wanted the UK to dynamically align with, UK, with EU rules on SPS. And this was seen as a holistic solution that would not only solve problems on the GBNI border, but also on the broader UK-EU border, border. Now, this 
as a, as a solution in general has been recognized, I would say by both sides, as just being politically unfeasible. The UK, now that it has left the EU single market and the European Union is, is not looking to dynamically align with EU rules. There has been an acceptance, I think, um, politically that this is not a feasible solution. And I think even to some extent amongst uh, businesses who would have seen this in, in many, many ways for a very long time as their preferred solution, long-term solution for trade and goods between the EU and the UK, they've sort of, they've dropped pushing for this ask now at this point. So if we see that the EU has kind of moved away from this and it's moved towards what really and truly are quite bespoke solutions for the Northern Irish problem. And what they've done is said that instead of aligning with us dynamically or non-dynamically aligning with our rules, what we'll do is we'll introduce these easements and flexibilities, but we'll caveat them with stronger market surveillance mechanisms. Now these come in the form of review clauses, mechanisms to, mon to monitor and, and look at the transparency of trade flows. And all this you know, goes very hand in hand with quite an interesting direction of travel in the EU anyway, towards much greater market surveillance of goods which are placed on the market. Um, and I think this is now seen very much from the EU's perspective as the solution to this fundamental problem, which is that the EU needs to protect the integrity of its single market and it needs to you know, put an end to the risk of the risk of slippage of goods into its into its single market, but it also needs to find a real compromise and solution that works for Northern Ireland, and it needs to very fundamentally reduce checks and controls. Mm. So I think this is the this is the solution, and this is the compromise that's been made in in that in in the in the eyes of the Commission on Northern Ireland, and I think we need to be quite cautious about looking at that as having any particular read across to the wider EU UK relationship because. Uh, I think when we're looking at what's been discussed in a lot of technical committees on SPS between the EU and the UK, these grievances about surveillance and about monitoring and about um, custom sharing of data information and IT systems between the EU and the UK, I think we're still at a point which is quite far away from a good solid basis of trust that would allow um, any kind of platform for extensive extended trader support schemes that you know could potentially form the basis for more flexibility with regards to SPS checks for the EU UK relationship. Yeah I mean it just seems to me that when you create a system in which you create a category of goods which are not at risk of entering the single market that can only work in Northern Ireland but once you yeah. once you once you roll onto a ferry uh, at Dover your goods are at risk of entering the single market simple as that so as you say there's clearly lots of arguments to come. Okay, exit question to both of you. Um, these proposals, trivial, non-trivial, and what kind of basis for a possible solution, Denzel? I think they are non-trivial, but they are not nearly as big as the Commission has made them out to be. I think that on, uh, on medicines, there's something ready there, but there's a big ask on alignment hidden away in there, which the British government will find extremely uncomfortable. On customs, they're quite vague. I think maybe in substance they're nearer. The SPS, I think it doesn't go far enough for the British government. So there's enough meat there um, uh, to coin a, coin a word uh, to be getting on with, but I doubt it will, on governance, it certainly doesn't go far enough. And it, it's enough to make it a difficult choice for the prime minister in a few weeks time. He will want to listen to what others are saying. Meat, but is it a national identity product? Illy, trivial, non-trivial, what kind of basis for a solution? So I think to go to the heart of that question, you really need to think about what you're analysing and judging these proposals against, because we can compare them against a number of scenarios, right? Do we compare them to the British government's proposals for implementing the Northern Ireland Protocol? Do we compare them against today's state of play, 
which is a situation in which there are a wide range of easements for businesses looking to move goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland? Or do we do what the Commission is doing, which is compare them to a scenario in which the Northern Ireland Protocol, as stands and as written now, is implemented in full? Applies in full, and I yeah. Think, and I think, you know, if you look at it from the Commission's proposal, there are a huge amounts of substantive changes and flexibilities that have been baked into these proposals, which are completely substantive and do represent real change. But if you look at it from the perspective of a business which might be moving goods from Britain to Northern Ireland, and it's comparing what these proposals would mean against its current state of play at the moment, it's going to be looking at more labelling requirement, more checks, more VET certificates, more, more EHCs to upload in digital systems. And they, these, these will be grievances that I think, you know, are, are going to massively impact the way in which the British government can, can interact with and accept these proposals. So I would, I would broadly agree with Denzel's analysis that they are substantive and they, you know, I think a, a, a flat out rejection of them on the grounds of not being perfectly aligned with the British government's form of proposals would be very difficult. But, you know, as with all these things, when it comes to Northern Ireland Pro School, the devil is always in the detail and a lot of detail is missing from these proposals that will need to be fleshed out um, in the talks that will take place over the coming weeks. Yeah, so plenty to watch. Okay, well, um, even having discussed those themes, of course, there's still more in the Commission's proposals we haven't touched on, although Ellie and Denzel and their colleagues have done lots of work in analysing the Commission's proposals from yesterday. As always, if you're implicated by these questions uh, or you've got concerns, don't hesitate to get uh, in touch. Um, thanks to Ellie, thanks to Denzel, and thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next time. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.